Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Bayrasli. Breaking news. In a major escalation in tensions between the U.S. and Iran, the top Iranian general has been killed in an airstrike while leaving the Baghdad airport. A dramatic escalation of tensions in the Middle East. A U.S. airstrike has killed Iran's most important military commander. On January 3rd, a U.S. drone strike killed the commander of Iran's Quds Force, Lieutenant General Qasem Soleimani. Qasem Soleimani was one of the most powerful figures in the Middle East and had been the top military man in Iran for more than 20 years. It sent shockwaves across the Middle East and fears of a full-scale war between the U.S. and Iran. Well, General Soleimani was seen as a charismatic national hero at home. The first sign of trouble for U.S.-Iran relations came in 1953. The CIA orchestrated the overthrow of Iran's democratically elected leader, Mohammad Mossadegh, and installed Shah Reza Pahlavi. The end of Iran's monarchy came early today when Khomeini's followers took control of the palace of the Shah. For Khomeini, the flight from Paris to Tehran marked the end of 15 years in exile. In 1979, young revolutionaries in Iran, who backed the Islamic cleric Ayatollah Khomeini, seize the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. The Americans inside have been taken prisoner. The government of Iran must recognize the gravity of the situation which it has itself created. The two countries have remained the best of enemies ever since. Still, hope for a thaw took hold in 2015 with the conclusion of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, more commonly known as the Iran nuclear deal. The aim to prevent Iran building atomic weapons. This is the good deal that we have sought. That deal, brokered by the U.S., EU, and Iran, restricted Iran's ability to develop a nuclear weapon. Until 2018, when Donald Trump withdrew the U.S. from the agreement, Iran complied. What does the death of Soleimani mean for the tensions between the U.S. and Iran and in the region as a whole? To address that, Vali Nasser and Nargis Bajoli joined me from Washington, D.C. Hi, Vali. Hi, Elmira. We begin with Vali. It's great to talk to you. Thank you, and thanks for inviting Vali me. Vali is a professor at the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University, a former senior advisor in the U.S. State Department, and the author of Dispensable Nation. Great, so we can get started. Go ahead, please. Vali, many people have noted that Qasem Soleimani's assassination came as a surprise. Why? I mean, he apparently had been in U.S. policymakers' crosshairs for two decades. It's true that the United States uh, viewed Qasem Soleimani as the source of many of the challenges it faced in the region. But just because there had been plans for uh, killing him or even targeting other sorts of things inside Iran associated with Iran's regional policy does not mean that once you do it, it's not a significant step. And I'm sure, you know, Iranians also have probably targets like that, that they might have thought at some point uh, to assassinate General Petraeus in Iraq or to, to carry out attacks against a significant American figure or an American base or an American ship. But just because you have plans for that or you've considered it, it does not mean that when you do it, it's not a major step that would take your conflict uh, to a whole different level. Many have referred to Soleimani as the shadow commander, responsible for backing Iran's proxies in the Middle East. He famously sought to develop a Shia corridor stretching from Iran through Iraq and Syria into Lebanon. 
And one of his main goals was to actually push the U.S. out of Iraq. Will his death now achieve that? Well, uh, first of all, let me say that uh, uh, Qasem Soleimani was not the origin of Iran's policy. Uh, he was the implementer of Iran's policy in as much as any uh, American commander in the Middle East is implementing what is U.S. foreign policy. So uh, Iran, first of all, views United States presence as a threat to itself. Uh, this goes back to 2003 when Vice President Cheney famously said that now that we've taken Baghdad, Iran, uh, Tehran will be next. And Iran is very clearly understood that they've always been vulnerable to Iraq as a staging ground against Iran, going back to 1980 war with Iraq and even back to the Shah's period. And they also understood that once the United States settles in Iraq, it will turn its attention to Iran. So from, from 2003, right after the American invasion, it became Iranian policy to make sure that the U.S. does not stay in Iraq. And Soleimani's job was to make the U.S. uncomfortable, to, to sort of keep cutting it, uh, making it bleed until it leaves. And that was achieved under President Obama. The United States completely withdrew its military from Iraq. And then Soleimani's job became to make sure that Iranian influence would remain in Iraq and Iraq would not revert back to uh, a, a form of government that would be hostile to Iran as it had been under Saddam. Then because of ISIS, the United States came back and the game with cat and mouse game with the United States continued. Uh, Iran always had had a base uh, in Hezbollah as a deterrence against Israel and, and it used Syria and saw Syria as, a, as, as key to both stability uh, that it had with Hezbollah in Lebanon and also to protect its position uh, in Iraq. And, and once the Assad regime came under pressure, what was about to fall, Soleimani was dispatched to Syria to make sure that that doesn't happen. So in some ways, this is seen as an expansionist view, creating a Shia corridor to the Mediterranean. At another level, essentially, is that Iran has now locked itself into a defense strategy in the region against the United States, Israel, and their Arab allies that, that demands of them to play this game uh, uh, of building proxies. And, and obviously the Shias are, are their natural allies and natural clients in order to control their uh, Syria, Lebanon, and, and Iraq. Bali, I want to follow up on some of the points that you touch on. Often when we talk about U.S.-Iran relations, we turn to the 1979 revolution and the subsequent hostage crisis. But what role did the U.S.'s backing of Saddam Hussein in the Iran-Iraq war in the 1980s play in the overall relationship? Well, in the Iranian view of the United States, is focused on the period that the United States supported Saddam. And, and I think the, the, the reason this has become very marked in Iranian uh, discourse on the United States is that when Saddam used chemical weapons against Iran, that the United Nations, the United States basically refused to admit that it was happening or do anything about it or condemn Saddam in a serious way. And, and because the chemical attacks became extremely significant domestically, it confirmed in their minds that, that, that the U.S. was willing to tolerate any kind of a transgression of international law in order to bring down the Islamic Republic. 
And so that became uh, very important. And let's not forget, many of the commanders of the Revolutionary Guards, including General Soleimani, are veterans of that war. So to them, um, the, the way they interpreted Iran's situation in that war and the U.S. role in it is, is very important in the way that they, they, they understand U.S. policy towards the Middle East and themselves. We have new information coming out of Iran. The Iranian regime says it is ending all commitments under the 2015 nuclear deal. In a statement, the Iranian government says it will no longer limit its enrichment of uranium, abandoning the accord's key provisions that block Tehran from having enough material to build an atomic weapon. I want to turn to the JCPOA, which is more commonly known as the Iran nuclear deal. And right now, I mean, you can either say it's completely dead or it's hanging on by a thread. And that's largely as a result of the U.S. withdrawal in 2018. And just this week, France, Germany, and the U.K. dealt it another blow by lodging a formal complaint that Iran is not meeting its commitments. What's at risk if the deal were to completely fail? Uh, So we will be back to having to urgently prevent a major country, which is at odds with with the West, from gaining nuclear capability. It also will have broader implications. Uh, The United States wants to arrive at a nuclear deal with North Korea. There are going to be other non-proliferation deals over the horizon or, or other critical security deals. If this one fails, uh, it's going to be very difficult to conclude any kind of a deal, uh, national security deal, non-proliferation deal, with an adversary like North Korea or even Russia, because the trust in the United States and Europe actually sticking by their commitments will be gone. And it will be very difficult to get Iran into another nuclear deal. It's not as easy as President Trump thinks, so why don't we just scuttle this one and we can just have another deal. This was a successful deal. It was successfully negotiated. The protagonist, Iran, actually implemented its part. Uh, The fact that the West later on thought that it could have had a better deal is not convincing or credible, let's say, to Iran, to North Korea, to Russia, or to others that the United States will have to cut these deals with. Difficult is definitely one way to frame the U.S.-Iranian relationship, which has been troubled since the middle of the 20th century. Another way to frame it is revenge. But revenge is really not a strategy. And when you take a look at what some foreign policy strategists say, I'm thinking here of Henry Kissinger, they've noted that the U.S. and Iran actually do have enough shared interests to support a very different kind of relationship. How might the two sides get there? Uh, Ultimately, you have to gradually change the nature of the relationship between them so that they can see eye to eye and actually act on shared interests. So the 2015 nuclear deal was not a grand bargain that was to resolve absolutely everything between Iran and the United States. You would have thought that then on on the back of that, you would have had other deals and you would have got on a path of gradually building more cartilage in this relationship so that policymakers in the two countries then could actually think of regional and international issues in terms of collaboration and cooperation. I think that's not possible because I think currently the, the Iranian regime at least 
views the United States as, as an existential threat, that it's not a question of common interest, is that the U.S. sees its interest in, in dismantling the Islamic Republic. It's very difficult to think of common interest when the survival of uh, the regime itself is, is, is at stake. And the U.S. in some ways has now seen the destruction of the Islamic Republic as tantamount to the realization of all of its interests in the region, which might be a very myopic and wrong way of thinking about it. And I would just say that it's important to note that the, the 2015 nuclear deal reduced temperature between the two countries sufficiently so they could look at uh, defeating ISIS in Iraq as a common interest. And you had a situation in which militias that were set up by General Soleimani were in tacitly cooperating with American air power and the Iraqi military backed by the United States in fighting ISIS in, in Iraq. And then the success of defeating ISIS in Iraq was a, a collaboration, although indirect collaboration between uh, United States and Iran. But that was only possible because the Iranians could think of ISIS as a greater threat than the United States. And that might no longer be the case if you have a resurgence of ISIS today. I was actually going to follow up on that and ask you because ISIS also has a goal of dismantling Iran. And so that is definitely, in terms of Iran and the United States, combating ISIS and defeating it is definitely a common goal. What happens in that battle then? Well, if you have a, a, a three-way battle, if you have ISIS, you have Iran, and you have the United States, uh, at some point the U.S. has to decide which is a greater threat to it. And Iran has to decide which is a greater threat to it. Iran has to decide is ISIS a greater threat or Donald Trump's America a greater threat. I would say at this point in time, they would probably think that Donald Trump is a greater threat. So they might even reach out to ISIS at some point or, or in the least not dedicate resources to fighting ISIS. Does the United States think ISIS is a bigger threat or is Iran a bigger threat? And if the United States come to the conclusion that Iran is a bigger threat, then it will actually pave the way for ISIS taking over the Middle East. I mean, the United States cannot have it both ways. If Iran unravels, Hezbollah, the Shiites in Syria, the Shiites in Iraq unravel, then there is no local force to stand up to ISIS. Vali, thank you. Thank you. It was good talking to you. The Pentagon says its drone strike targeting Major General Qasem Soleimani was aimed at deterring future attacks by Iran. It's part of President Trump's so-called maximum pressure campaign against the Iranians. But there are fears that the killing of Soleimani, a revered figure in Iran and some other places in the Middle East, could see simmering tensions between the US and Iran turn explosive. The president of Iran, Hassan Rouhani, said the way to avenge General Qasem Soleimani's death was to drive the United States out of the Middle East. He said this morning they have cut off our dear Soleimani's hand. The revenge would be to cut America's feet from this region. He said that would be the real revenge and final answer of regional nations to America. Hi. How are you, Nargis? Good. How are you? I'm trying to just... Nargis is also a professor at Johns Hopkins University and the author of Iran Reframed, Anxieties of Power in the Islamic Republic. You've been busy. Oh, my goodness. This has been a horrible start to the year. I can only imagine. I can only imagine. 
Nargis, I wanted to speak to you today about the recent events with Iran and put them into context of Iranian nationalism. We've seen the reaction in Iran to Soleimani's death, and it seems to have caught the Trump administration off guard. Iranians thronged Soleimani's funeral procession, and the entire country really rallied around the regime that, just a few months ago, repressed nationwide demonstrations. Why was Soleimani so admired in Iran? One of the ways I think we need to understand Soleimani as a symbolic figure is to, we have to back up a little bit. So in 2009, when the Green Movement broke out in Iran, at that point, it was the largest uh, national demonstrations and protests in Iran since the 1979 revolution. And it was against uh, what what folks in Iran believed was voter fraud to reelect uh, Ahmadinejad as the incumbent president. And then the Islamic Republic decided to suppress that movement quite violently, there began to be a a lot of discontent within the population uh, against those that they saw who had been in charge of the violent crackdown, namely the paramilitary forces and uh, the Revolutionary Guard. I started my research project uh, in Iran in that summer, actually, and what I was focusing on were the media makers of the Revolutionary Guard. In the five years after that, what they were focusing so much on is How could they recalibrate the message of the Revolutionary Guard and get people to overcome the crisis of legitimacy that they had produced in the 2009 crackdown? So one of the things that they decided on, well, there were two things, and this relates to Soleimani. One of them specifically was to recalibrate what the Revolutionary Guard means in Iran to no longer be a force that was just there to protect the Islamic Republic at all costs, but instead to show that it was a force that was that is there to protect the Iranian nation. But then secondly, with the rise of ISIS, they needed a new hero. So many of the heroes that they had been relying on in the first couple of decades of the revolution uh, within sort of regime messaging and, and uh, media relied a lot on those who had been killed in the Iran-Iraq war. And they knew that those stories were not resonating among the younger population anymore. I mean, I think it's really important to note that um, a vast majority of Iran's population is under the age of 40, meaning they don't remember the revolution or the war. So they needed a new hero that would appeal to younger audiences and that would also sort of appeal to a broader swath of the population than just those who might believe in the Islamic Republic. And so they settled on Qasem Soleimani, because he, first of all, sort of stayed above the political fray within the country. There's a lot of political infighting in the Islamic Republic. But then, two, because his activities were focused outside of Iran and not inside of Iran, he really didn't face the same level of criticism that other folks within the IRGC did in Iran. Um, And then third and most important is because he was leading the fight against ISIS, this was a fight, you know, I mean, I think it's really important for audience, especially American audiences, to understand that one of ISIS's main goals and their main enemy were the Shia. The way that it was, this, this fight was messaged within Iran was that if the Revolutionary Guard is not in Damascus, then ISIS would be in Tehran. And so from around 2013 onwards, there was a huge media campaign around Qasem Soleimani as a figure. And that's very odd in Iran because usually they don't do big PR campaigns around living fighters. It's, It's usually always about martyrs. But the regime remains unpopular. 
We saw anti-government protests after Iran's forces accidentally shot down the Ukrainian passenger jet. But Soleimani's death, however, shows us that foreign intervention is even more unpopular. What is the U.S. misunderstood about Iranian nationalism? I don't think it's that the U.S. has misunderstood Iranian nationalism. I think the U.S. has also misunderstood the Iranian revolution. You know, the, the Iranian revolution of 1979, the way it's been understood both in popular culture in the U.S., especially after the hostage crisis and the way, and this is really important, I mean, the way in which the hostage crisis came to be on the nightly news of American television night after night for a year and a half. I mean, it was the most covered country since the Vietnam War in American living rooms on a nightly basis. So the the framework that began to develop in the nightly series, especially what became Nightline and sort of launched Ted Koppel's national career, that sort of framework came to understand and to talk about the revolution as one that was led by religious fanatics. 1979 was a very popular revolution as far as it was a revolution that was from the bottom up. It didn't, it was not a revolution led by a vanguard or a group of guerrillas. It was a revolution that came from the bottom up in society. And so given that, one of the main rallying cries of the revolution was neither East nor West, meaning neither the United States nor the Soviet Union. It was a revolution that has to be tied back into our understandings of Iran of from really sort of the late uh, 19th century, early 20th century to today, in which there have been long movements in Iran for sovereignty and national liberation away from uh, both the the Russians and the Brits, as well as the United States. And so Trump tweeting over and over again and doubling down after the assassination of Soleimani about targeting Iranian cultural sites. That happened as the, the funeral processions in Iran were starting. And so what it ended up producing was not just a outpouring of anger against the, the assassination of this, you know, symbolic person in Iran, but also sort of an opportunity to show that as much as folks may or may not agree with the Islamic Republic, they were going to be standing up for Iran as a nation. Nargis, much of your research focuses on the role of state media within Iran and in particularly that of the Islamic Revolutionary Guards. You mentioned that the elite military branch has recently undergone a domestic rebranding to better bridge the growing generational divide in the country. Is it working? Sometimes it works. Like with Soleimani, it worked. But sometimes it doesn't work. So first of all, Every state creates propaganda. Every state produces propaganda. Some states are just more savvy at producing it than others are, right? States are able to do this quite well because they have a lot of funds at their disposal. And the Revolutionary Guard in particular within Iran has a lot of money at its disposal. They they are getting better at what they do. And part of the reason that they're getting better at what they do is in the first two decades after the revolution, they were really focusing on uh, using the Soviet Union as a model. So they were sort of using Soviet media as a model about how to create uh, revolutionary media in Iran. The newer generation of Revolutionary Guard media makers have realized that that kind of model no longer works. And so what I heard over and over again is that they 
wanted to, and they were, they began to study the very close relationship between the U.S. Department of Defense and Hollywood Studios. And so they began to look very closely at all of these Hollywood-made, you know, uh, films about U.S. wars. And so their their newer productions are much more in line with those kinds of films than sort of the Soviet-era films. And so it's some of it is working quite well. Um, and then, of course, a lot of it doesn't. Nargis, we've talked about Iranian nationalism and how Iranians rally around this weariness about foreign interventions, particularly U.S. interference. How do Iranians view their place in the world? Iranians see themselves as having had a very prominent place in the world throughout world history, and especially a very prominent place in the region. I mean, this is one of the reasons why all of this talk coming from the U.S. administration about Iran needing, you know, Iran being a a malign influence in the region and needing to sort of get back to its place rings very hollow in Iran because Iranians sort of see themselves rightly or wrongly as uh, having had a very long history in the region and one in which they have alongside, um, you know, what was then the Ottoman Empire and having had a very, very long and important cultural history, political history, religious history, philosophical history in the region. And so because of all of that, they see themselves as as necessitating respect on the international stage. And this is one of the reasons why Javad Zarif, the foreign minister of Iran, uh, would say over and over again throughout all of these negotiations that we have no problem negotiating, but you need to negotiate and sit at the table with us uh, in a respectful way. You have to respect us just the way that we would we would respect you back. Um, and the way in which they've been isolated in the past 40 years, they are mad both at their own government for some of that isolation, but then also definitely very mad at the way, and especially with the JCPOA, the Iran deal, and the way that the Trump administration pulled out of it, um, in which they the Iranian population, as mad as they may be at certain things that the Islamic Republic does, this is an instance where they knew that Iran had been abiding by the Iran deal and that the Trump administration pulled out for no reason. And so all of this plays into the mixture of feeling extremely disrespected as sort of a nation and a people and and recognizing that, especially when it comes to regional politics, uh, vis-a-vis Saudi Arabia, vis-a-vis other Arab countries, um, and vis-a-vis Turkey, they understand and they, they expect from their own leaders that they have a rightful place to be a leader in that region. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting when you take a look at sentiment in Iran about nuclear capabilities, it's the one issue that whether you're on the left or the right or you're conservative or you're not, most Iranians really get behind this and rally around it. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's a great point. I mean, for the nuclear issue specifically is a national issue because, again, it's seen as uh, we have a right to this. You know, our our country has a right to be advanced because in the past we have been and you can't keep that from us. And then and then second, I think also really key to this is it goes back to and and this is also how it's been, you know, talked about within Iran. It goes back to uh, the 1953 uh, U.S. CIA coup 
in Iran, where where it's about we demand uh, a right over the energy of our country. At that time, it was oil, uh, and the U.S. and the U.K. took that away from us and reinstated the Shah. And they're they're trying to do the same thing again now. Th- that that's sort of the narrative of the nuclear issue in Iran, and and understanding that this is a national right, and that the international community, because it wants to have Iran submit to its will, does not want. This does not want Iran to have these capabilities. Great. Thank you, Nargis. You're welcome. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosli. Thanks for listening. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Brusalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Jonathan Stein and Rachel Dunna. 